Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. We've got an awesome patron-exclusive episode today on the patron feed. It is about the psychology of Christian nationalism with Pamela Cooper-White from Union Seminary in New York City. And uh, if you want to hear the entire episode, you got to become a patron. Seven bucks a month, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is always in the show notes. You also get access to the patron-only Facebook group, two or three of these exclusive episodes per month, and ad-free episodes on that patron feed. But a part of my conversation uh, with Pamela was so good and so practical. And in fact, I would say it really applies so widely beyond simply the question of Christian nationalism, but really applies to kind of anything that a loved one and you really disagree on or something that you really think is a danger in in one way or another. Since Trump's election and burgeoning popularity within the evangelical world, this kind of conflict between us and maybe family members, friends we grew up with, etc., has become, you know, so common as to not barely even need to be mentioned. But I have felt there's a real lack of practical tools, lenses, kind of like give me something with some steps that helps me discern how and when to talk to who in what way. And Pamela developed this like red light, yellow light, green light system uh, for her book on Christian nationalism that I think is just so good that it applies beyond that. So I wanted to include this section of the conversation in the main feed because I wanted everybody to be able to hear this part no matter what. I just thought it was so cool. 
So that's what you're going to hear on the main feed here is just the kind of towards the end of our conversation, this red, yellow, green light system and, and, and this kind of process of discernment that she came up with that I think is so brilliant. If you want to listen to the whole episode, then probably just go check out the patron feed and, and you'll get to this part towards the end. In that episode, we talk about white supremacy. We talk about people's conscious and unconscious needs. We talk about the role of fear in Christian nationalism and other, especially kind of right-leaning political ideologies, although you, you see some fear-mongering on the left as well. We talked about crisis merchants, people like Alex Jones and Tucker Carlson. There's a handful of people on the left as well who really make their living and become more powerful and wealthy by stoking fear and stoking a sense of, of impending crisis in their listeners, readers, etc., and then we get into this, this practical thing of, am I the right person to have a conversation with this other person? And is this the right setting or time for that conversation? So here is uh, the last part of my talk with Pamela Cooper White around her kind of discernment model that I love so much. We're talking about, you know, how do you talk to the uncle at the Thanksgiving table who is spouting Christian nationalist rhetoric and you want to just argue with them and you want to just debate them. And my strategy is you don't do that. Thank you. That's that should always be step that, one. <laughs> that is my step one. Well, my step one is prior to that. Uh, my okay. step one is to ask yourself, am I the right person to be having this conversation? Oh, is this the right you are place? speaking my love language, Pamela. So good. Yes. Is this the right place to be having this conversation? And is it the right yes. time to be having this conversation? So, oh, hold on. I got to just I got to highlight that. Am I the right person? Is this the right time? Is this the right place? Right. That's fantastic. I got into psychology through Trump's election and then reading Jonathan Haidt righteous mind uh -huh. and and realizing, oh, I love theology and I've always thought I would study theology, but actually the questions I'm asking are more psychological questions. And that language is more getting me the kind of answers I'm looking for. And I, I just love his thing about if you want to pass gun control, do you have a Hollywood actress as your spokesperson? No, you get a retired general, you get a retired decorated NFL coach to, to speak to people who like that mm -hmm. person, who identify with that person, go, hey, you know what? I own guns. Also, I support this legislation, mm -hmm. right? Like, so am I the right person is fantastic. And like, if your uncle is like, you know, watching Newsmax six hours a day and you are, I don't know, unless you have a really, really close relationship, you are like a gender queer drag queen ballet dancer who lives in, you know, San Francisco or something like you might not be the right person. Like you, there, there may be certain limits to sort of your ability to move the needle with certain people because there's just too much distance sort of culturally, not because you don't mean well, not because you don't love them. Right. right? So that's why once you decide, am I the right person? The right, is this the right place? Is this the right time? And if the answer is no, uh, then you yeah. stop. And so I have this. I love kind that of decision tree. That's great. Green yeah. light, yellow light, red light, kind of simplistic. Yeah, but that's good. I think the first thing you have to do is triage. So first, you ask yourself about yourself. 
And then you ask yourself Hmm. about how entrenched they are in this point of view. And even if you think maybe you could be the right person under certain circumstances because they're a family member and you care about them. Right. Argumentation will not work, period, because what it's doing is raising their defenses. And if they are really entrenched, if they were to admit that maybe some of these ideas were wrong in an argument, that could invoke shame or just rage. Uh, so you do have to know when when the red light is on and you stop. And yeah. you. So then what do you do with your energy around this issue? What do you do with your outrage of what you're hearing? And I like uh, what the psychologist Bandy Lee has talked about in a couple of her books on Trump, which is you channel your energy and outrage into education and advocacy for social change. So, I mean, I myself get involved in protests. I do a lot of op-ed writing and other kinds of education where I teach and in these kinds of these kinds of speaking engagements, you know, um, yeah. speaking to a group of people where somebody might tune in and hear something and they don't have to interact with me and they might hear something that makes them think, hmm, oh, I wonder. Uh, yeah. so- My first podcast I started was called Depolarize. I was like, you know what? I do not want to argue with family members and other people in my life about Trump. I'm going to put my energy into interviewing people, basically get, providing something for people for whom I'm close enough mm-hmm. to them that they might plausibly want to interact with it. And then if I do that job well, then it will have overall a positive impact. Right. So that's what you do in, when the red light is is when it's a red blinking light. at you. Yeah. When it's a yellow light, I I think of that as a situation where you've already got a foundation of trust and rapport with someone. It doesn't have to be a family member. It could be a coworker. It could be someone you know in your church or someone you know at school or work. Uh, but you already have a relationship. It's really important to establish a relationship first. And you mentioned Jonathan Haidt. It's interesting. I was introduced to his work through my daughter, who is a social neuroscientist and was working for a time at a nonprofit called OpenMindPlatform.org where they use his um, his thinking about values and that Republicans and Democrats tend to tilt toward different values. So Republicans tend to tilt toward values of, of loyalty and authority. Yeah, the moral foundation theory stuff. Yeah, I talk about it a fair bit on the show. Yeah. Okay, and then Democrats tend toward justice and nurture. So- Yeah, care, care harm, and justice, yes, fairness. Yes, right. Yeah. So- I think that comes into play here because with a yellow light, maybe you've established that you share some of those values across because nobody probably is an absolute zero on on most of those values. Right. So you establish that you've got some common values and then you, however, the conversation starts about Christian nationalism or some of the related ideologies you have to listen more than you talk, even though you're dying to tell them what you think is the truth. You have to listen more than you talk. And when you do talk, you need to make what you and I would both know as I statements, where you're talking about, well, from what I've learned, I've come to think maybe this. And you put it out there softly and gently, and and you try not to hammer it as an argument. And then you express what I think all therapists are also trying to do, you express genuine curiosity, warm, 
interested curiosity about where they're coming from. And empathy is another way of talking about that. Empathy doesn't mean agreement. Empathy means you can somewhat put yourself in their shoes and think, well, I can understand how you came to believe that because so that's yellow light stuff. And it can turn red at a moment's notice and then you stop. (laughs) Green light follows on with building and maintaining relationship and really having some solid common ground to go forward with. And then treating them always with respect and kindness, not an impulse to fix them or to heal them or to disabuse them of what you think is wrong thinking. Um, Loretta Ross, who's a longtime Black activist, um, feminist organizer, teaches at Smith College and just recently won a MacArthur Genius Award for her work, uh, talks about calling in, not calling out. So when you hear somebody say something, say in a group setting that you find just outrageous, you can just attack them publicly and show how virtuous you are because you have it right and they have it wrong. And so, for example, if someone makes a racist remark, it might be maliciously intended, but it might also be ignorant It might not be something that they're just simply not aware could be heard as racist by someone else. You don't have to go for the jugular first time out with this person because that's just going to reinforce their sense of defensive. I'm right. They're just coming after me. And that's so wrong of them to do that. And it's also a kind of virtue signaling where you're saying you're racist. Therefore, because I can call you out, I'm not. And especially when it's a white person doing the calling out, which often is the case. It's more about signifying my being pure and your being the bad one, which is another form of splitting. So calling in is inviting that person to a side conversation to say, you know, when you said such and such, this is how it landed for me. And to see if you can talk it through. And very often that approach is going to have that person be able to say, Maybe they're not going to agree with you right away, but they can say, I see where you're coming from, and I will take that into consideration. So that's Loretta's way of thinking about not being part of a call-out culture that is really about virtue signaling, but calling in into relationship to talk about these things. And that's when you really have the green light of a prior relationship is when it's going to work the best. So those are my sort of prescriptions. In the book, I go into lots of detail about how you listen and how you do active listening, which is sort of the foundation of all care and counseling. Uh, It works just as well um, in personal relationships as it does anywhere else or in a professional setting. There are skills to listening well and to caring while still not needing to agree. One thing that I think is worth noting about that is it's effortful. You know, when I am active listening with my clients, I'm at fucking work, right? Like I, I don't do the same kind of active listening over pizza with my wife at dinner time that I'm that I'm doing in a session with a client. And that's enough. I think a, it's implicit in what you're saying, but maybe is worth making explicit is that if it is the right time, you're signing up for some mental mm-hmm. work, some emotional mm-hmm. work, maybe even what will feel like some physical work if it becomes mentally exhausting mm-hmm. enough or depending on what time of day it is. And, you know, if if it's not time for you to be at work and you don't think you're going to do a good job, then that's another way of saying I might be the right person. This might be the right place, but it might not be the right time because my battery's drained. And if your battery's drained, 
do not try and have this conversation. We have a right to um, to step out of a situation where we ourselves are being targeted for microaggressions or macroaggressions. Uh, don't sure. have to be entirely self-sacrificial to engage in these kinds of conversations. So we have to think about that for ourselves as well, because this is work for the long haul. This is not a short term. We could just, if we had conversations with every single person who leans toward Christian nationalism, we could fix things. It's not going to yeah. go that way. We have to be savvy enough to recognize that the true theologically uh, funded Christian nationalists are millennialists who see this as a as the long term strategy. You know, they didn't get to the overturning of Roe v. Wade in a day. And we also need to think about this in terms of conserving our energy and using it in the right time and place in order to do the long haul work that is anti-racism work and that is work for gender equality. We have to think in terms of how we're going to sustain ourselves and each other in that work. Yeah, not having illusions about <laughs> that's another that's another aspect too. Um and and therapy teaches this to you that like you know, you, you've got little levers you can pull and, and you've got the, the main thing you've got. And the research shows this over and over again across, you know, psychoanalytic, psychodynamic CBT approaches. The number one factor for whether people get better is their rapport with their That's therapist, right. is giving them that positive regard, like making them feel accepted in the room and in the relationship. And it would be kind of silly to think that it wouldn't be true with people in your life right. that you, you know, are interested in their, in their healing, right? It's the relationship that heals. Yeah, it is. And all the modality and all that and all the intervention stuff is secondary to someone feeling like they, like they are cared for and understood by their therapist. One of my, speaking of therapy, one of my favorite questions to explore with clients across so many different issues comes from the 12-step the stuff and the serenity prayer, which of course is, predates the 12-step programs, but that's what it is most known for now. And I just love this question of like, what is within my control and what's mm -hmm. outside of my control? And and if we can get a pretty good handle on that, you know, you're talking about sort of this is long-term work. And I think that applies to a lot of things in our life where it's like, are you spinning your wheels? Are you just grinding your gears and depleting your battery for something that you don't have personal control over at all? Or are you using your limited energy, resources, time, care, whatever, towards things over which you have some actual agency? So you can't control what happened to your uncle when he was a teenager, and you can't control how much Fox News he watches. What can you control? You can use your energy to determine, is this a red, green, or yellow situation? If it is a green or yellow situation, I can put my energy into being an active listener, a calm and compassionate presence with this person. Like that's a, you do have control over that. And that will bear some kind of fruit, whether or not your uncle leaves behind his Christian nationalism, he will at least have had an experience of loving care from someone with whom he disagrees. And that is gold. I mean, it's fucking gold. For, to give people those experiences. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And maybe this is the last thing I'll I'll say, but you're planting seeds of recognition. Yeah. One of the terms in psychoanalysis these days that's really important is how 
hungry we are from the time that we're babies for recognition, for someone to actually mm. see us and see us for all of who we are, not just for a particular belief that we have or a particular behavior that we did, that we need to be recognized, seen, witnessed. And that there's power in that that really can be transformative. And you don't know by what you were just saying that by providing them with some empathic listening from someone who is supposedly in the enemy camp when it comes to an ideology, and you're actually interested in them and you want to understand it better, you don't know what that's opening up for them, even in terms of questioning their own beliefs, because, wow, you know, if that person was able to listen to me that openly maybe I ought to think a little bit more about what I know they believe because I've seen it on their Facebook page or I've seen their op-ed and now I, I'm face-to-face -face with them and maybe I need to consider some things. And that's a long, slow process because getting out of a really firmly held belief in a high control kind of organization or ideology is a very hard thing to do. It's shameful because you have to admit that you were led down a garden path of wrong thinking. And it's also, it, en it encompasses some survivor guilt because you're leaving behind people who are still part of that club that you no longer want to be a part of, but you cared about those yeah. people. They cared about you. That care was genuine. And how can you leave them? So there's lots of reasons why it's hard to break out, even if you begin questioning, but there comes a tipping point where the questioning begins to take over and you can't tolerate certain things that are said or done anymore. And that's what yeah. finally leads people out. And the other thing that, that I think is important at that moment that I also have in my book is be there for them when they start leaving, because that is not an easy process. And, and the grief of losing that group connection and all of the other things that have to do with leaving a group are going to be there and they need someone to support them in that. Fantastic. And the, the last thing I'll say is those of us, most listeners of this show, myself included, who have gone through a faith change, a deconstruction, mm -hmm. whatever you want to mm -hmm. call it. I don't think I've ever met anyone for whom that was less than a year of their life. Yeah. For me, it was off and on for 15 years, maybe depending on, I don't know where you want to set the boundaries, but it took a fucking long time. And we just got to imagine this as akin to that. I mean, literally, for some of us, it is actually the ideology out of which we deconstruct it. Is We have been talking about the literal same ideology. And even if it wasn't, even if your church wasn't particularly Christian nationalist or whatever, you know, we know what that's like and we know how long it took us. And so let's be realistic about that. Mm -hmm. You know, reality is those things take a long time. And if we look at our own trajectory, we will probably find one to six people who were kind to us and who listened and weren't judgmental and were there with time or resources when we needed it. And so let's just commit to being that for the people in our lives. And many of your listeners may in fact have grown up in very conservative church environments and- Most. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I have students, yeah. I'll give a shout out to Union Theological Seminary in New York where I teach. Our core mission at Union is social justice, as expressed through various religious traditions. We say it's where faith meets social justice to reimagine 
the world. I never get that motto right, but it was something like that. Um, but <laughs> that sounds pretty yeah, good. <laughs> but we do have evangelical students and Pentecostal students and students who are drawn to us because of the social justice core of our mission in our teaching. And we also have many, many students who left behind. Huh, that was an interesting slip of the tongue. The left behind series. They <laughs> left behind uh, a very constrictive and rule bound conservative church upbringing maybe explored for quite some time where they wanted that to go but the but the the foundational religious and spiritual questions never left them because it was so preoccupying and it was so so much a part of their being able to get away from this kind of dominating culture that they want to come back and study theology and they want to study religion because they want to come to understand what they believe themselves now as opposed to what they were force fed earlier on. So that journey Absolutely. is really a journey of maturity and it's a journey away from that kind of splitting idea of everything is all good or all evil to a more complex understanding of how very complicated religious questions are and how many, many different people have answered them so differently. And it's, it's a good thing to be able to have that space to explore and not be indoctrinated. Pamela, thank you so much for going a little long here so that we could do some of that practical stuff. I mean, it really is like gold. And uh, I'm going to be thinking and working with even your your red, yellow, green light model. I, I know you think it might be a little simplistic, but I really like that, actually. Well, people seem to like it. Even my editors were like, I said to my editors, you think this is too, too simplistic? And they're like, no, it's fine. So I kept it. <laughs> And there's some discernment around that. You might get it wrong or whatever, but I like looking for where am I probably at here with this person? And um, so we'll have a link to the book, The Psychology of Christian Great. Nationalism. Any other links you'd like to have uh, for your work in the show notes? The other book that's kind of more in, for that readership that might be great for your audience is this book I co-wrote with my spouse, Michael Cooper White, who's a Lutheran pastor and was president of the Gettysburg Seminary for 17 years. Uh, it's called Exploring Practices of Ministry. Mm, cool. And it's intended for people who are considering seminary or just beginning seminary to kind of give them the lay of the land of what the different fields within practical theology are and the current thinking. It's not a book that was intended to introduce totally new, radical, innovative ideas. It was kind of what is the lay of the yeah. land and what should you expect to learn about these things? Cool. And um, yeah. It's got, you know, some little questions and answers and little sidebars and stuff that's that kind of book. Your audience in particular might have an interest in that. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for writing this book. And I, I really, yeah, I enjoyed it. I especially enjoyed, I've sensed some spots where we're, you know, we're, we have some overlap and some disagreement, but I love finding the, the places of deep agreement, especially around the practicality of it all. So I, I enjoyed that a lot. 